Hi, I wanted to welcome everyone who's joining to the next in the Sustainable Herbs Program Toolkit webinar series. And I'm really excited today to welcome Tal Johnson and Sebastian Pohl, who are going to talk with us today about creating a culture of sustainability in a mission-driven company. Um, I'm thrilled to be able to speak with Sebastian and Tal. Um, I picked them specifically because I've been struck by how open each of them are about sharing the process of their work, not just the results. Um, Sebastian, who with Tim Westell um, is the co-founder of Paca Herbs. He's based in the UK. Um, Sebastian's also an herbalist and an Ayurvedic practitioner. Um, and he's a big champion of the Fair Wild certification among other things. And um, Sebastian invited Terry and myself to join them, cameras rolling, when he visited his, some of his suppliers in South India, um, which was remarkable. And he didn't tell us to stop filming at any particular moments. So that openness really impressed me. And Tal Johnson, who um, became the CEO of Taza Herbs, Taza Tea, sorry, at 33. Um, and he spent 10 years working really to build a company and culture in that tea company before going on to start his own business, another business. And then he joined Herb Farms Board in 2011 and became the CEO in 2016. And Tal lives in Portland, Oregon, and he's really passionate about building positive, equitable, and purpose-driven workplaces. And Tal I was, invited me when I asked them about their booth at Expo West, which I had soil among a field, a sea of no soil. And I asked him if I could do a blog post on their process of creating a booth at Expo West. And he said, not just that, but he invited me to join the meetings for planning for the whole booth, um, which has also seemed like a really generous opening, lifting of the veil to see what's back there. Um, and didn't I would share what I was gonna write, but he didn't edit out the content in any way. So I really appreciate that openness and I'm thrilled to have you both here. Sebastian, I wanted to start with you and ask if you could just talk about the process of, you know, you started Pakati in your kitchen and you had a lot of ideas about the value of that and how you went about instilling those values in what's grown and grown. Thank you, Anne, for such a warm welcome. And uh, hi, everybody. Lovely to be with you. Uh, you know, I started from a just a position of a young idealist, really, where I was just, you know, a product of the times and a part of a, a younger generation that wanted to, you know, see change in the world, really. And as a herbalist, you know, it doesn't take you long to realise that you've got to work out where the herbs come from. And as soon as you start looking into it, uh, even more so back then, in a way, 25 or so years ago, you um, you realise that there are there are issues, basically, with, with the value chain and and knowledge really and so I, I fell into getting involved and in being a leader in regeneration and I don't think we were even using words like that back then uh, but it really came from a you know a lucky happening in a way that I'd come across Ayurveda and learned some of the wisdom that is inherent in that tradition and you know cutting a long story short, I wanted to share that with, with lots and lots of people, but I wanted to make sure that when we did it, it respected the values of that tradition and the you know, wider tradition of herbalism, which 
yeah, led to us exploring what culture means in a larger organization, um, what values are, but you know, how we could really you know, cultivate something special. That was the idea. And the, the word culture comes from cultivation. So as we're all herbalists here and interested in growing a healthy future, that's where it started really. Do you want to talk a little bit about some specific things you did? Like I'm thinking the wisdom seeds and yeah, to, and so that, yeah. Sure. Um, I mean, at first we, you know, there was just a few of us. We started, you know, with a couple of thousand dollars, uh, Tim and I, uh, getting it together, going around the health food shops, etc., in the UK. After we grew to, you know, more, you know, double figures as such, and, and a bit more, we realised that we needed to create a language that we could share to give people a deeper experience of what it means to be um, a part of Pucker, and to share and sort of articulate our sense of a higher purpose, for want of a better word, really. You know, what was the, where were we going to evolve to? How could we offer people? A sense of belonging as well it's you know it's one thing to have an idea it's actually very easy to have lots of ideas you know i'm sure everyone listening today is full of them but you know turning that into reality is another thing and then you know starting with some principles and, and adhering to them is, is a challenge and you need good people to do that that are as passionate as you about the cause and of course we're very fortunate to build our culture and values around the principles of organic you know, the wisdom of many people that have traveled before us really in terms of uh, third party certifications like Fair for Life, Fair Trade and Fair Wild, which I'm sure we'll talk about more. Um, so we really wanted to, you know, embed these principles externally for our customers and then educate people internally at Pucker. And, and we wanted to draw from the cultures we work with. So we developed these things that you mentioned called the wisdom seeds, uh, which are really based on some uh, values out of uh, uh, yogic traditions, Buddhism, uh, Asian uh, concepts, and they are uh, truth and uh, respect and purity and effort. And we, it was a bit clunky in a way at first, where, you know, that it felt like we were sort of landing these ideas in with people, but we, we started to um, uh, incorporate them into meetings. And so we would appoint someone to, to take charge of these ideas. We um, use them in our annual uh, development plans. How could we get people to explore these areas of their life that would be meaningful to them outside work as well as within work? And so we just, yeah, tried to really create a way so that anchored people in the, in the business. How did we develop a deeper route than just this external marketing colorful um, array? I, you know, I don't want to sit and say it's all been perfect for a minute. You know, we, we really were working out as we went along and I'm afraid it was through our mistakes that we learned really along the way um, and had lots of help. You know, we, we brought in advisors, people more expert than ourselves and, and learned a lot along the way. That's great. There's lots more I want to draw, but Tal, I want to give you a chance now to chime in. So you're, you're coming from a slightly different point of view, the companies have existed and then you've come in and I'd love to hear what that process has been like for you and also as you've learned from being in different places. Sure, um, and I'll try the camera as long as it works um, and I'll click off if it gets, uh, gets too glitchy. Um, but my, kind of my first inkling um, 
the, these things are important that by these things, I don't just mean sustainability. I'm, I'm really talking about just the notion of even having values and being um, very uh, intentional in the values you instill in a company um, came from a teacher. I had a guy named Jim Collins, who's the one that wrote a lot of the, you know, the good to great um, uh, business books and such that were um, popular not too long ago. Um, his first book is actually my favorite. It's called Beyond Entrepreneurship. Um, sold the worst. I got the most out of it. Um, and it uh, made just a very compelling case for how to create a compelling mission and purpose in a company. Um, and the subtitle of the book, this will be my one and only book plug. Um, it's an old, it's like an old cookbook. I've got notes and things all, all over the place. But the subtitle is Turning Your Business into an Enduring great company. And the part that clicked with me was enduring uh, about trying to create something that would really last. And, um, uh, and so my first experience actually trying to do this, so, which was a long time ago, it was 1995 when it started for me, I was not the founder, unlike Sebastian. Um, I always try to be clear about that. The founder of Tazo is a fellow named Steve Smith. We've partnered together in that business for uh, a decade. Uh, and I've always had a lot of respect for, for the people like Steve and Sebastian who can take a white clean piece of paper and create something out of, out of nothing. I came along about, uh, I don't know, 10 to 12 months after the company formally first existed, but it had the first product lines, it had the basics of the brand. I was able to literally see, touch and taste what we were gonna be working with. Just try to make that, um, that distinction but we were small. I think I was the fifth person. Um, I think we were, I think our payables were, we were only a year old, but our payables were anywhere from four to six months old. So we were kind of scratching by. And um, in those early days, I think everybody has a sense of purpose and mission, or you're much more likely to. Uh, and survival is a powerful motivator. Uh, and like us, if you're in you know, one room working really closely together, every day, you know what it's all about. You get the why of the business and it's why you're there. You're not there because they pay twice as much as everybody else. You're there because you care about what's happening. And that was the case. That was the case for us. But eventually if you survive that early stage and you start adding more people, um, you need to write it down. Basically, you do need to start to create some something um, that's not just relying entirely on word of mouth. So. We did it then um, by pulling people together. And I can't remember what year exactly, although I, we were in two or three of our development. So it wasn't immediately. Um, we gathered a, people to, a group of people together from all levels of the company. And the important thing here, I think, is to go broad and go deep in the company. You don't just have it be a lot of senior folks. This is, this is my advice, advice that I will tell you I have not always taken myself, but um, uh, it's the advice that comes out of some learnings. Um, and we just charged this group with creating our core values, our initial core values. And I think this was at a time when kind of the notion of calling things core values, for me, it was relatively um, new. And it was, um, like I said, something that a, that a teacher had, had impressed upon me. Um, and we trusted this team. And, and they, they wrote a list of eight values that ended up being just fundamentally um, uh, drivers of, of, of culture in the company. Um, and uh, people went to bat for all kinds of things. Um, core value number eight was fun. 
we eventually had a group called the CV8 group and everybody knew that CV8 was fun and anytime they met something good was usually going to happen after. Uh, we documented our core values in different fun ways, but it was just, it drove um, uh, a lot of culture in the company. We're not initially a um, not highly driven by sustainability, I'm afraid, it's just the truth of it. We had we use cellophane wrappers on all of our boxes. I look at it now and scratch my head and wonder what were we thinking? And Steve actually was the first one that said, we got to get rid of the cellophane. It's not something we should be doing. We were motivated by trying to basically reinvent a, a tea category. Um, uh, and we're uber passionate about tea. Sebastian, we were, we were um, one place in America where you couldn't get a cup of coffee, but you could get tea all over the building. Every desk, everybody had every, tea that we made and a, and a kettle um, on every desk. But if you asked for a cup of coffee, you, you couldn't get one. We became at one point a subsidiary of Starbucks, um, very small tea company in the middle of a huge coffee company. Uh, and Howard Schultz would come by to visit and he, he couldn't get coffee. Um, and we were proud of it. We wanted to be that rare place in America um, where that was the case and it drove a lot of culture for us. But building the values up front um, was fundamental and like I said going kind of going broad and deep in the process and then letting that group run um, we were clear about uh, it was not going to be a vote I mean that was just the honest truth it wasn't going to be let's vote on the final ones and whatever this group says goes um, it had to be in sync with the, the founders and it had to be in sync with ownership um, but we also tried to guide that process really gently and trust that group with these decisions. And, and that is really what happened. There wasn't a veto at, at the day on anything. And so people I've always believe people tend to support what they help create and going through that process helped everybody understand it, buy into it. Um, we had evangelists, you know, all over the company from that day forward because they were part of, uh, part of putting it together in the first place. So early days, we, we didn't need it. We got to a point where it became really important to have it. Um, there's lots there. Sebastian, do you want to respond to anything or continue with your story from Paco or? Yeah, and it's really nice to, you know, really great to hear the story. And I, you know, it sort of feels like such an exciting time, doesn't it? Starting something with a group of people. And like you say, the, the culture is often quite instinctive at first because you're all, all following the same vision yeah. and, and really on the same mission, really. And then as you grow, of course, you need, my experience is you need experts in different areas that are really good at operations or finance or, you know, whatever it might be. Um, quality and they, they might come from different right. backgrounds and you, you want to include their expertise as much as share share what you what you love as well and one thing we did that helped really shift the dynamic actually at Pucker is we uh, maybe would yeah got to I don't know 60 people or so by now is we work with this uh, uh, community that run like life development business leadership courses is a project in the UK called the Eden Project. It's a, um, it's like our eco Disney world where you can go and see lots of plants and there's like a big uh, dome biosphere you can go in. And we, we took the whole business there in, in groups of 10 or 15 um, 
over the space of uh, a couple of years. Well, it's been going on for a few years now and people would have like a four day immersion in nature as a small tight group based around these wisdom seeds as just as sort of hooks, if you like, to, to ground it. And people would really immerse themselves in nature and have a very sort of sensory experience of the majesty in nature, which, you know, I think this idea of presencing and how you really turn up and take your seat and Otto Sharma and his theory, you theory, I think talks a lot about presencing and this idea of being in nature and how that can give you the experience and passion to do what had brought Tim and I to pucker in the first place, really through the, our different paths and the, the fortune we've got of feeling that uplifting nature that, uh, that uplifting energy that nature can give you. And we were trying to deliver it in a, in a, in a small cup of tea or a, a you know, good quality capsule. Um, but also because you're pushing boundaries as a young business and one that's trying to uh, shift the culture in the world you're in, in a way, to make it more sustainable, you know, you're pushing stuff uphill. You know, you're, you're short of resource, whether that's money or time. Uh, you're up against, you know, big players. And you, you're asking a lot of your team. And so engaging them in the things that bring you energy and vitality felt like something that was worth doing. And um, it's just been so heartwarming having set it up and uh, the, the letters people write to us and the appreciation they give. Um, that, you know, really serious immersion in nature and exploring their own inner lives that they might not have had a chance to do. And having really good parties. I can't deny, but I feel it's been really good for our culture. And, you know, go away for a, the day into into the countryside and spend a day dealing with some difficult challenges and problems but also celebrating together has been a big part of our time at pucker we, we you know what we're trying to do is help people celebrate nature as well and so we've tried to do that quite a lot not recently of course unfortunately uh but but you know no joking aside how you know creating an atmosphere of fun as much as possible in amongst all the hard targets and challenges um i think it's really served us well so yeah, offering inspiration that's outside work, but that's meaningful, I think is really important. And yeah, creating a sense of fun and that we can, we can sort of out achieve ourselves in a way, you know, we can, we can sort of dream our dream of how we want to be. And if we can, a bit like a plant, if you can plant it in the right place, it can flourish. And that's, you know, I'm sort of squirming a bit because I know we haven't done it brilliantly, but you know, we've tried to plant people in the right place so that they're getting the right nourishment to flourish. And yeah, hopefully, hopefully that has a ripple effect across the whole community and everyone starts to grow. Well, I don't think anyone's done it perfectly, right? I mean, that it's, and, and what I'm impressed with the Eden Project also is the attention to relationships and how so many people talk about that. So important in sourcing botanicals, but also nurturing those within the, the company, um, which can also often get focused on meeting budgets and deadlines and that sort of thing. And so that attention to those relationships. And I'm curious, Tal, if you could talk a little bit to take that further and how, you know, at Herb Farm, you have a farm. So there's that um, relationship with plants and place and how the these qualities of nurturing a culture and community balance out with the business part of meeting budgets and you know sourcing botanicals in a complex world. Um, if you have any insights or 
stories from that. Yeah, and I'll try, uh, I'll try this again as long as it, it's functional. Um, yeah, the herb farm is um, obviously, uh, you know, an established business, still a you know, relatively modestly sized business, but uh, yeah, it was a 40 year old company. And when I arrived, it was a 30 some year old company. Um, and, um, and it was one with a really strong sense of its own values. So um, I didn't feel like we had to do the same kind of initial work. In fact, I um, wanted to be careful to not um, kind of, you know, frankly, screw up what was already what was already there, a real strong uh, culture built around um, making plant based medicine and doing it with extraordinary quality and meticulousness and things flowed right out of the founders uh, veins um, Ed Smith and uh, and Sarah Katz um, so very different than my early you know kind of experience in the tea business um, with Tazo in that sense um, but on the other hand um, again like I think Tazo and anything else you have to renew your purpose along the way um, and you still want to do things to make sure that uh, it gets passed on to the next generation of managers and owners, um, which is another topic we could get to uh, later maybe. But um, uh, so with Herb Farm, um, we took a slightly different tack and to quote uh, Sebastian um, or borrow Sebastian's comment a little bit, you know, we haven't gotten everything all perfect either um, to say the least, but I just put up this because it's it's our expression, how we uh, decided to try to take what was uh, we felt was core to Herb Farm and express it for ourselves and for future generations. We took the, the mission and vision that um, was there with Ed and Sarah. Um, we shortened it. Um, we put it in terms of, of, of our purpose of serving plants, people, and planet, which I know is something we share in common with uh, other herb companies. To me, that's fine. Uh, we're all pulling on those oars together as an industry. And I think way. Um, but for Herb Farm, we wanted to take other aspects that we thought were just fundamental to fun and remember and not forget. And we call those our values. And those are things like our values as farmers, because um, we are farmers, uh, herbalists. We, um, we try to um, keep herbalism um, on a pedestal as much as we can. And um, we have some probably who wish the pedestal was higher uh, than it is at times, but um, uh, I want and we want herbalism um, to be front and center uh, at the table on a pedestal, like I said, in, um, in all of our decisions. And we always want in everything we do to practice sound um, quality herbalism in our product development uh, in particular, but other things as well. Um, other core values as educators, as employers, things like their root values rather educators, employers, and the one that I like to call our taproot, which is stewardship, just that we're stewards of the planet, we're stewards of, of uh, this company and these products that are important to people. Um, we're stewards of the business for next generations of manager. And uh, it's one of the things that impressed me most when I first set foot on the property of our farm was this notion of just long-term uh, stewardship that uh, my predecessor, the CEO, Mark Allen. Uh, Just how can I introduce Tal? I'm at Tal. Um, and then I think started with Ed and Sarah. 
So we took these things, put them in terms of root values, and that's how we express them um, to ourselves and outwardly. Now, the, the qualifier is, um, I will say in hindsight, we did not go deeply enough in the process of kind of sucking out. Yeah. I think maybe Tao, if you put your video off, because you're breaking up. thing is checking out but anyway either way I you know, completely agree with him it's something that you just need to keep revisiting and it's that's part of the fun you know it's a bit like you know with the family isn't it you know you've got a different requirement at the different stages of all of your lives and how you're living and evolving together uh, whether it's children's behavior or adults behavior you know how you engage together and you know that is of course hard when you know what helps you survive is your cash flow and your 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 business on the outside uh you just have to prioritize it you know it's a bit like with one's own life you know it's it's hard to go out and do a run or squeeze it in isn't it sometimes or not that i run but you know whatever <laughs> uh, uh you you've got to you just have to prioritize it really and that um i mean one of the biggest learnings for me i mean it's i don't like to think in terms of regrets but yeah i wish we'd I wish we'd employed an, a real expert in people management earlier on. That was a, a real uh, eye-opener, probably because they were so good when they came and sorted so many things out. But that was a really important area. You know, we spent a lot of time focusing on our value chain and our suppliers and traveling around and building relationships and a lot of effort on quality and criteria and a lot of effort on our customers. And, you, you know, you've got to nurture this. It's sustainability. I mean, I think you've been really good at this, Anne, in the Sustainable Hers project, as you know, as well as exploring how that really lives for the the grower, you know, the people doing it as well, you know, which in a company's case maybe a grower or a, you know the, the team that's working in what, whatever department. And that's why I love Fair Wild so much as well, because it, it you know it looks after the plants and the ecosystem, but it looks after the community. It's a very holistic and integrated approach. Um, I know that's slightly different subject in a way, but I think there are these. These examples we can follow in whatever business you're in, you know, doesn't have to be in the herb business, you know, it can be in, in any area that, that can follow, um, the, you know, the principles of nature really is what we've always tried to seek as a reflection. How can we look at our organization, our tribe, our family as a living system? And, you know, it's always difficult in a fast moving business you know our whole industry is going through radical transformation at the moment and growth um how we help people keep up with that and embrace that change you know there is such a lot of requirement to be agile and adapt whether that's you know commercially or personally you have to try and create that environment where that is celebrated really and that that can be that can be a, a challenge because it normally requires extra effort to do something new for the first time or, you know, to stretch your, you know, what you're adding in another certification, <laughs> you know, one of the challenges when you're going on. So it has to be, um, it's that balance, isn't it, of stretching far enough that you can see something, a world that's better than where you live, but it's keeping it grounded enough so that it's digestible on a day-to-day -day basis. Well, and it also seems so curious, both of your thoughts. So you're both in an industry where there's big pressure on price and you all have to compete in that marketplace and the qualities and the work you're talking about require time and resources and investments, both in the human relationships, but also in the supply network, you know, and 
spending more time investing in like the certifications regenerative farming or fair wild. And so can you do you have, talk a little bit about how, you know, I guess in a procurement decision making, when how do you ensure that these values actually make it through that, oh, I can get this herb for five cents less per pound? Um, how do you get those values into those decision, micro decisions, which is ultimately where you're going to be me measured on sustainability. Oh, if you're asking me, I mean, I, yeah. you know, it comes down to A, the leadership and what the, the leaders want in a way, because that's the, the guidance. But in technical ways, it's having a specification that you, you buy to, that you set that standard, that it is X, Y, Z, pharmac appeal, compound or, 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 you know, certification as you need. And that becomes your rule book, really. And then this is our shopping list and this is what we buy. And if there's a way of um, planning with your partner to work out a fair price, you know, how you can get to a price that you know you can sell at and that, that they can afford to as well, you're then in a partnership. And I, I suppose we've always tried to create long-term forecasts, give people confidence that we're there for a long time, you know, create a relationship so you can both invest and, and trust uh, trust that you can do that. Um, but I would just say one thing on that, that, you know, we're all in a fake economy because you're incentivized to buy cheap, unsustainable food, clothes, everything, basically, herbs especially. Um, and whilst there is a subsidy and a progression of the promotion of nitrogen and pesticides, you, it, and it's a bit different in the herb world, but generally in the agricultural world, you're always going to be competing with a, a market that's got a drug to make its plants grow bigger. And so we're sort of dealing with an addicted cycle. And thank goodness, particularly coming out of America as a European Brit, um, that, you know, there's such a powerful movement of ecological awareness in, in some quarters, which I think is really driving this change. And if we can all push towards a way of the polluter being responsible for their pollution. I think that levels the playing field and we can then um, buy uh, uh, goods that are, are at the appropriate value, i.e. Um, if it is more expensive to grow regeneratively, then that should be, that should be in, a, in a level playing field where your competitors are essentially taxed for polluting the planet, but in a probably slightly deviation conversation not quite sure what you think tal but <laughs> we've no, tried. I, I i agree sebastian with everything um and i'm sorry and i got completely kicked out of the meeting and um to been able to log back in um i i've always felt um it's important to just stay in complete control of that cost quality trade-off decision um uh which is why we've um, not done things where we have to outsource that element to somebody else because um, it's also a sustainability cost trade-off as Sebastian said it it costs more to farm regeneratively um, it costs more to do a lot of the things we do we trust that we have enough support in the marketplace and I agree Sebastian with everything you said about externalities um, uh, that are you know pushed off on the planet and companies are not bearing those costs the way things are set up now but um, we trust that we have enough support in this marketplace to sustain our business um, and have built our business model in a way that you know it we, we can sustain the business but it's a competitive disadvantage and it's probably one of the biggest obstacles to scale 
um, because the economic incentives are so powerful for so many others and just the basic needs of people who are buying products um, uh, and people are so stretched. Um, those incentives for many become necessities rather than just uh, an economic you know, carrot that they ran after. It's not that for many, I think. Um, and one of the biggest challenges is scale. We're doing things right, um, trying to do things right anyway. You're doing a great number of things um, extraordinarily well. I think with probably more scale than we are, but if you look at the planet and you think about our collective impacts, um, solving for scale is one of the, I think the greatest needs we have. I don't know what the solutions are. Um, Tom Newmark from Carbon Underground gave a talk to part of Herb Farm um, not too long ago. And uh, you know he made a very compelling case for the need to, to get a lot of the things we're doing at scale. And how we do that, that's a longer conversation, um, but it's essential that we do. We're in a race to, to take what some of us are doing and, and to get it to scale for the benefit of everybody and the whole planet. I'd love to chip in just given that, you know, we're in the middle of a massive health crisis, you know, in terms of scale, you know, there's a, there's a need for natural herbal medicine to be actually accessible at scale as well. And I think that's, you know, a, one of the great sort of areas that hasn't quite joined together is, is the environmental movement and the health movement. I think they share the same values, but we, we haven't quite, you know, there are bits going on. We haven't quite found a way to harness that power of two great movements going in the same direction. And I, I, I and you can see it happening with nutrition and organic food. Uh, obviously herbal medicine is a little bit deeper down the journey, but uh, you can see ripples of it with, you know, the evidence base for herbal medicine being so exceptional. Um, the quality of lots of companies now, um, you know, all the sponsors of uh, ABC, etc. A, a lot of them are their great quality. You can see that that shift being able to happen. And like Tal says, the, the scale thing is essential for accessibility because because of the cost, some of it could be perceived as being unavailable to wide swathes of people. And the, the, the way, one of the ways to change that on a, on a positive sense, rather than the taxation system I was mentioning before, is to you know, incentivize farmers so that some of the subsidies, the, the many billions of dollars that are given every year to farmers are shifted to regenerative agriculture, rather than um, these sort of fixed payment systems that we seem to have in Europe, you get paid just for having the, the largest amount of land you have, you get paid for that. It's ridiculous. And um, you, you don't get paid for how you look after it. I wanted to um, stay with this, this tension between like vision and values and then scale and growth. And um, Tal, I wondered if you could talk some about ownership and the importance of thinking about ownership and the role it plays in navigating that journey because as you both say things have to we have to reach larger larger yeah so yeah um and i'll uh, i'll switch to something regenerative and pleasant to do that um yeah i for for, for people who may be um in an earlier stage of a business and raising funds my advice is that those early decisions have far-reaching consequences um, when you're uh, when you're deciding who is going to 
own some or all of your, your early vision. Um, and when you are most desperate for funds, I totally understand it. Um, just make those decisions with care. And I would just say in general, you know, beware the highest bidder. They have the highest need for returns. They have the greatest need to take risks. They may put the greatest pressure on quality and, and, and values. So make those decisions with care. Um, there are a lot of things you can do to protect against the downsides though. Um, one of which is Sebastian, what I think you've done at least from the outside looking in, which is to, to make these values um, so integral to what you've done that um, there is no incentive to, to change them. Um, the incentives are to perpetuate them and to grow them and to build on them. And that's really probably the best way to do it because it puts you in sync with the world in which we live as it is more. Um, so I, you know, kudos to that. I think it's probably the best and most important thing to do. Um, we've uh, obviously tried to do that as well over the years at, at, at Herb Farm. Um, we've taken another step we're able to take, which is to become a B Corp, or in our case, a B LLC. Um, and we did that really to try to pour as much cement, if you will, if I can use that as a metaphor, on the values of uh, Sarah Katz and Ed Smith. Um, so that, you know, we, we did all we could to, I guess, two things. One, institutionalize those values by writing them into our legal documents. Um, and then two, just as importantly, I think, uh, to give all of our managers current and future legal permission to make decisions beyond profitability and beyond the bottom line and to, to compromise and make sacrifices for other um, objectives. So, because there's an argument among some anyway that uh, you, know, you have to maximize shareholder value. Um, I happen to think there's a equally or more compelling argument to the manager should be free to kind of seek or optimize the outcomes for their own values, including sustainability. Um, but uh, we wanted to give our managers clear legal permission to basically sacrifice economics for, for the greater good or for more important things in the long run. Um, so B Corp's another thing you can do at least um, in a lot of US, if not all US locations to try to bake those things in legally as well. Sebastian, I think B Corp's great. And um, something else that actually happened for us quite early on I'm not quite sure how it happened, but we uh, we set up a board at a very young stage, and um, uh, th that really helped us uh, get some sort of outside input. And then, you know, when our ownership transferred uh, into Unilever, we we established a mission council so that we have this external body of experts in agriculture, um, environment, uh, health uh regenerative farming actually as well and so you know they're like advisors friendly uh friendly critics you could say as well you know they're there to keep an eye to help us stretch um because it you know i think this idea that you've got to a point and you you stop uh with your ambitions i mean culturally i'm thinking and and with sustainability you know you need to ask yourself if that's enough and at, at pucker one of the great things is you know, there's so many sort of activists in the way that are, that are looking to drive and help us stretch in all sorts of ways, in a measured way, you know, it, it needs to be done bit by bit. And so that's, that's really valuable as well. And I think having those 
teams in the business, those groups that champion various causes is, is really great. And we, we, we you know, particularly encourage that. But having a board and a mission council and third party certification and some cracking specifications, they, they're, they're a good way of embedding um, who you are. Sebastian, could you talk a little bit more about the certifications? Because often as a consumer, you think that the certification is protecting myself, but how you've talked about it is also both baking in the values, but a learning, you've described the real learning and growth that it's offered PUCO internally. Can you talk some about that? Yeah, well, because unfortunately, when you go for third party certification, you get quite a few non-conformances in my experience, the dreaded NCs. And uh, the inspectors are, you know, highly knowledgeable in their, their particular field. And so I found it really, really valuable for learning myself in the early days. And then when we did bigger things like uh, uh, B Corp or 1% for the Planet, you know, we had um, uh, teams across the business that would bring other people into the conversation. and help with their understanding and so 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 that's been really good um i think it's also really great for your partners when they're going through it you're the the cultivation you're growing or wild harvesting partners because they a recognize how serious it is b they know someone's going to come and check and i think having that third party objective eye is really valuable and a lot of consumers just don't know what the logos are. It's just too complicated. I mean, I'm, if we survey all our Pucker customers, I don't know the figures off the top of my head, but, you know, not everyone knows we're organic. They certainly don't know what Fair Wild is. They just want to know that, you know, I feel like it's our job to do it for them. You know, we're, we're there to serve people with something that they, they probably can't get everything together. It's too difficult and they're too busy and they, they've got their other uh, responsibilities. So it's our job to give them what we would be happy with using ourselves that's that's how we started it really and we've carried that on and but the, the third party certification you know they're progressive as well it, it gets harder and, and as you get bigger that they, they are a, they are a stretch for everybody but they're a helpful guide i don't know tal you've you've recently broached into this regenerative organic as well which is like the most hot off the press standard isn't it so uh interesting yeah I know. Yeah, we were um, really happy to um, jump on the chance to be a pilot farm for ROC um, when we uh, uh, first heard about it, actually, en route to, uh, to Expo one year. Um, and um, it's not just, uh, it has not just been another badge to put on the website or something like that for us. It has made us better um, measuring new things, um, holding ourselves accountable. Um, Matt Dybala and who I think you're going to have on another panel soon can speak to this at greater length and um, more authority than me. Um, but uh, I think he will say that it's made uh, us better as a company. It's, it's helped him um, just also just teach and educate our whole group of folks who are working on the farm. We're composting more. We're doing more and better uh, cover cropping, um, uh, much more diverse blend of species in our cover cropping in, in multiple dimensions, actually. Um, and um, yeah, it's been, it's been good for us. I, I have to admit, when I first heard about it, I thought, all right, going beyond organic, that is important. Regenerative is uh, essential for the health and future of the 
planet. And that's why we jumped on it. I, I didn't expect it to help us improve as much as it has. And, and so that's been, a, I think, a really, uh, a really good thing. Um, we leave a lot more land fallow than uh, I think Herb Farm used to back in its history. There's a number of things we're doing. And we have a lot of certifications. Um, uh, and uh, it's hard to keep up with all of them. We're, we're salmon safe um, because of a riparian project we did on a creek that runs adjacent to our farm, planted hundreds of trees for the health of that creek. Um, we're bee friendly. Um, uh, the woman who tends to our botanical education garden uh, uh, identified a new species of bee on our farm. Um, uh, bee Corp certified organic, regenerative organic certified. There are a lot of them. Um, they're hard to keep up with, but um, they made us better. It's not just been a badge. That's kind of a fun aha for me. Um, and when, one of the questions um, Ed Fletcher's kind of builds on what you're both talking about, you know, huge investment in these certifications, what, whatever they are. And Ed asked, how can companies best quantify the advantages of regenerative practices or say fair wild? So the financial folks are satisfied. So again, it's sort of how these values, how, how the rubber meets the road. Well, first off, get financial folks that buy into the values. <laughs> That's the first step. Because sometimes it won't pencil. It doesn't have an obvious ROI, right? What's the ROI of planetary health? Well, I don't know the equation, but I think it's pretty big. And I don't mean to be flip about it, uh, Ed. Um, um, but uh, um, I suppose when it's fundamental also to your brand and your business model, um, to live by these values and hold yourself accountable in these ways. But if you stop doing that, you will, you'll lose your value as a brand and eventually your business. And you, know, you will find margins compressed. You will find things getting tougher, not easier. I think if you start to compromise on these things, I, that I think is actually a very slippery slope to being um, a very unspecial, you know, potentially non-enduring um, business. Um, I mean, another thing that we, you know, when when some of our finance directors have maybe been a bit more <laughs> pushing down on the bottom line, is a, uh, you know, you we've had to explore, um, you know, a heat map of the world. What's the world going to be like in terms of the next uh, 10, 20 years, thirty years, in terms of uh, availability of the herbs in some of these areas, and and what will happen if these communities aren't there to collect, you know, lime flower, nettle, dandelion, elderflower, elderberry. They're all wild collected. You know, every single maybe not every single kilo, but ninety nine percent of it comes out of the wild um, of those species. I think uh, maybe except for on herb farm where they'll grow a lot of them. But um, you know, it's it's a risk to your supply that you you won't have it. So economically, you 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 can make the sustainability argument that there is a, a risk to one supply through availability, um, and yeah, you've got to get them to drink from the magic cup. The, the, the finance team and, and, you know, other people that are professional managers and experts in the relative area, you've got to get them to drink from the magic cup. Because then when they drink from the magic cup, whether it's a tincture or a tea, uh, I think that transforms them and they get on the road with the, the vision and they, they find savings in other areas that perhaps there isn't so much value embedded in it. You know, in a herb company, the, the value we have is in the quality of our plants. And their future availability. There are other areas, I think, to try and save cash, which 
you know, maybe that's onboarding production, maybe that's uh, looking at packaging deals or things like that. But that's that's what we've tried to do. Um, yeah. 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 There's, there's, yeah, no, there's there's kava in that magic cup, Sebastian. <laughs> Not in the UK, it's banned. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> well, come on over. Um, yeah, please, send me some. I'm in need. <laughs> I, I wanted to, because this is a different version of two of the questions, but Phil Deacon has asked, when commercial success arrives with all the associated pressures, how can integrity, playfulness, and generosity of spirit continue to be assured? Insured. And that also kind of comes in with because a smaller company, maybe you're more likely to have everybody who's drunk, who will drink the tea. But when it becomes bigger, how, how do you scale that? Well, I think we're in the middle of it. You know, it's a sort of emergent reality. And I think you just carry on. You carry on learning, carry on, you know, stick to the basics. And there's a great book, Everything I Learned in uh, everything I need to know about life I learned in kindergarten, isn't there? You know, I think, you know, keep going back to the basics. So just keep getting the teams to reinvent the, the culture and, you know, keep getting people to co-create it as such, I think is one thing. Uh, keep sharing stories. You know, a lot of it's about storytelling and helping it uh, be personal. And yeah, keep engaging people. I don't know, Tal, what are you, you, you're, you're busy in the middle of that as well. I mean, the pressures are always there, I think, at any stage. Um, early stage, it's survival. Later stage, it's maybe making a, making growth targets. If you're public, you've got even more kind of, you know, day-to-day -day or quarter-to-quarter -quarter public pressures. Um, but again, if, you, if you've done the things to make it fundamental to your, um, your, your, your product and, and your brand, that these values are essential, like drinking from the Patagonia, um, cup. Um, it's an example. Um, it's much more likely to perpetuate. And my general thought on growth is it can be good or bad. Um, it depends on what you're growing. Um, and I've always felt our most important first social impact is what we make. And we make a product that's inherently healthy. And as we grow and succeed, we help people be healthier, live, um, you know, healthier lives. That's a, a good thing. And if we can do it with our other values along the way, our growth is expanding growth, and that's good. That's it doesn't mean the pressure goes away, but I think the pressure is there all along the way to sustain yourself along these other, you know, financial and other parameters. There are pressures of distribution and shelf space contraction, and um, one major customer buys another major customer, and all of a sudden the 800-pound gorilla is, you know, 1,600 um, pounds and and staring you down. Those are there. Uh, uh, I think no matter what, and you've just got to navigate it. Um, we're coming to the end, and I have one question I wanted to ask each of you, Seb, maybe I'll start with you. So being a leader, and because you see, as you said, something that's not in reality yet, and so moving toward that and bringing people along can be really hard and challenging and often lonely, and I wondered if you have any um, lessons or advice or wisdom to share each of you, you know, thinking about that. I think I do. I mean, something I've, you know, Tim and I've always asked ourselves every year, you know, at the end of the year, when we'd have grown whatever, 25 or 30%, you know, what have we, have we managed to keep up with that? Are we, are we keeping up with that vision? And I suppose the things I've done is, you know, go on a retreat in nature, go on a silent retreat or a quiet retreat or go camping and just, you know, get perspective really. And, 
and then go with your instinct. I think that's what I've learned a lot. You can, you know, you 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 build up your experience, and then your and that sort of adds to your instinct and your intuition. And so, those are those are two things. And then, yeah, lots of yoga nidra and ashwagandha. <laughs> those are two requirements of my everyday. Tal, you've been on a much longer management senior leadership journey than me. How do you keep well, um, well and happy? You're aging me. Um, you know, my advice. Um, sometimes I follow my my own advice. Sometimes I I, I don't. Um, but I, I I try to. My my advice for somebody you know stepping into a leadership role or in a in a leadership role is, um, listen. I lead best when two ears are open and one mouth is closed and um, the internet probably did some of you a favor by cutting me off at different points um, today. But um, listen, care about your people. Um, I care deeply about what it's like to work at the company. Um, I want people to be able to live you know, good lives. We wanna pay living wages. Um, we're, we farm in rural Southern Oregon, we started paying uh, $15 an hour is a minimum starting wage a while ago, long before we were required to. Um, we're still not required to, but we do providing health care, gold level health care plans for everybody, um, paid for by the company, um, profit sharing, things like that. Just you know, care about your people. You won't always get it right. Um, we don't. We're a work in process. Um, and um, don't, uh, this is where maybe I don't always follow my own advice, but don't be afraid to show it. Lead with your heart. Let people know how much you care about them. Yeah, lovely. Sebastian, do you want to add more? Any other thoughts? Wrap up? Well, really, I think it's really nice. I think that's just perfect. You know, I think, uh, you know, listening, going with your heart. You know, at, at the worst, at the worst, you'll have been true to yourself, and at the best, it will it will come true. I think you know that's the best thing. Is to, I think we're all in a space where we, if we're lucky enough to be able to dream about being a part of a world that's slightly different, how do we contribute to that? Really, we have to visualize that, and we have to articulate that. It's like getting fit. I don't know why I'm thinking about that today, but you, you know, you decide to before before you really are. And I think we have to decide where we want to go before we're really there, and then we have to find a way as a leader to inspire people and take them, you know, you know, with us in the, in the, in the journey, basically. A bit like you're doing, Anne, with Sustainable Herds Project, you know, <laughs> you're complimentary to us, you know, I'm a massive fan of what you're doing and raising the realities of the complexities of the herbal collection world, whether it's growing your own herbs or just processing or, or gathering them from around the world and the issues we are contributing to as herbalists and and solving as well. And yeah, so I, I just want to say a champion to you. So, um, I, I, I agree, Sebastian. Thanks for bringing that up. And thank you, Anne. Yeah. Well, thank you both. And I think what I've learned from seeing inside and listening to both of you and seeing inside the industry, you know, I was quite critical of the industry from the outside. And it's easy to be a critic and to get inside and really understand the challenges and the decision making. Um, it's it's a nicer place to be. It's kinder. It's less judgmental, and there's more hope because it's less the overall is wrong or right. But each decision making, you know, decision can be 
an opening and opening and opening or a closing and you learn from it. So I appreciate that, the way you both invited me into that, so. Our pleasure. Great. Well, thank you both. And um, thanks everyone for joining us today. And again, please check the Sustainable Herbs Program website for upcoming webinars. Thank you all. Thanks, Thanks so much. much. Thanks, Bye, Sebastian. Everybody. Hi, and see you, Tal. Great to see you. Cheers. Bye. 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 Bye.